your own copy of God's Word this morning, then I'd invite you to grab a, a copy in front of you in the pew, in front of you, or to the sides. Um, I'm preaching from the ones on the ends, the English Standard Version. We're looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Um, but before we begin, let's go to the Lord and ask Him for His help. Our Father and our God, we thank You. We thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us and for your grace, for meeting with us this day. We thank you for your word. And we ask, Father, that as we look at your word this morning, uh, that you would give us uh, your spirit that we might see and understand, hear and know. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, reading verses 8 through 12. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to, you, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Well, our passage this morning is about living a righteous life and the blessing that um, flows from it. Our passage this morning is about living a righteous life and the blessings that flow from living a righteous life. Verse 10 really sums up our entire passage. We read, whoever desires to love life and see good days. The rest of this passage and certainly this quote from Psalm 34 um, really are an explanation of of what a life worth living looks like and what constitutes, quote-unquote, good days. Certainly, we would say, who doesn't want to love their life? Who would not want to live a life that is um, worth loving and worth uh, enjoying? But the reality is that certainly not everybody enjoys life. Certainly not everybody has a life worth enjoying. By by life, I I don't necessarily mean livingness of, of having a heart that is pumping. But life in the terms of, of everything that life consists of, our, our jobs, our, our families, our relationships, our hobbies, uh, our, our, our actions, our thoughts, our intentions, everything that life contains. If you were to ask the world, what does a blessed life look like? What does a good life look like? Certainly the world would have one that is perhaps different than uh, what the Bible would say. Certainly from a world's perspective, the only way that you can be happy or blessed is if you are powerful, rich, and retired. Uh, these are the only ways in order to be happy or to have a, a blessed life. But we have to here remember to whom Peter is writing. The, the context here. Because Peter is writing to folks who are, who are suffering a great deal. You'll remember that the recipients of the first uh, letter of Peter, and certainly a second as well, are what are known as exiles. They are folks who are living in this world but belong to another. They are believers in Christ. Their citizenship is not here, but it is in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens. 
And they're living in a context and in a culture that is exceedingly ungodly. And they are being persecuted left and right because of their affiliation, because of their union, because they are named with those who love Jesus. They are being persecuted because of who they are in Christ. And so when Peter is writing to them about what a blessed life look like, looks like, certainly he is not primarily thinking of perhaps where our minds go when we think about what a blessed life looks like, where I'm comfortable, well-fed, and have enough leisure time. For them, it looks very different. That's what I want to explore this morning. That biblically speaking, a, a blessed life comes from um, a righteous life. That a blessed life comes from a righteous life. But when we use the word righteous, we need to back up a little bit. Because we must say that, that our lives are better when we lead our lives in a way that glorifies God and that is free of sin and that doesn't follow the ways of the, the, the world, but indeed follows the ways of the Lord. But we must, must first say that as Christians, we are righteous. That we are called to live righteous lives. And we sometimes fail in that. But we are and have been declared righteous by God in our conversion. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the passage that I read for uh, the children's sermon this morning. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we speak of our salvation, our biggest problem is that we are naturally not righteous. We are unrighteous. We are filthy sinners. And each and every one of us has a hereditary and fatal disease that we have inherited all the way back to Adam and Eve. We were not born good people who do good things. And yet the standard for salvation is still 100%. 100% righteousness and perfection That is, that we have to be 100% pure, never having sinned, always fulfilling the law of God and being perfectly holy. And I know from my personal first-hand experience, this does not define me. And neither does it define any of us. And this is the great news of the gospel. That while God requires righteousness to be in His presence, to live forever, to receive eternal life, He has supplied and given to us the righteousness that is needed. Christ lived a righteous life for us. As we look at these elements of living a righteous life, especially in the context of the church, that's that's the context this morning, we we fail at each one of these all the time, and yet Christ has fulfilled the, the royal requirements of the law, the righteous requirements of the law, so that we who are in Christ would be counted as righteous. He has fulfilled righteousness for us. Have you ever known identical twins? I had a, a couple friends in college, we were in a fraternity together, Thomas and Benjamin Garner, and they were identical twins. Um, now, if they were together, I could tell them apart. But you know, in the four years that I ate almost every meal with these gentlemen, if they were apart, I could hardly tell the difference. In fact, the only way that I knew is, is how they greeted me. One was nicer than the other, uh, or perhaps I was closer to the other. Uh, and one would wait for me to speak, and the other one would, would hail me from a distance. And I knew which one was which. Um, now, I don't know that they did this, but well, I do know this. They, they played pranks on their teachers in high school. 
showing up for different classes. And perhaps this, they, I don't know if this happened or not, but, but what if one was bad in one subject and, and one was good in the other? What if they both showed up and, and, and took the test for the other one? And so when the report card came out, it said that, that each had 100%, a perfect score. One had done it in the place of another. Now, certainly this is an imperfect analogy. But this points us to what Christ has done for us. For He has taken the test of righteousness and He has lived the righteous life that we have not been able to, to live. And upon the cross, He paid for our sins. We gave Him our sins and He has accredited to us, accounted to us, imputed to us His righteousness. So that when the Father looks at us, He sees the righteous acts of His Son. He has stood in our place. So what does it mean to have a blessed life? means to live a righteous life, but, but first we must say that as Christians, we have a blessed life because Christ has declared us to be righteous. And therefore, He has given to us life. When we think about what life is here, it is for the believer more than just living. It is ultimately to receive salvation. When we speak of John 3.16, um, that He might give us everlasting or eternal life, that life is not just talking about heaven. That is something that we receive in the here and now upon our conversion where we are given new hearts of flesh and we begin living for the first time. We cannot have a blessed life unless we have eternal life. It's as simple as that. We cannot have a blessed life unless we have eternal life. That means we must be in Jesus. But certainly, for those who are in Jesus, we've been declared righteous, but we are still called to live righteous lives. To work out our, 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 our salvation in fear and trembling, not, not to do good things to earn God's love or His favor, but because we have His love and His favor. Certainly, we see this in this text. As we think about living a blessed life, a good life, to a great extent, it is leading a righteous life here on earth. We've been declared righteous, and now we are called to live in a righteous manner. And you know, the thing is that when we live the way that God desires us to, our lives are simpler, freer of drama, and more glorifying to God. This does not mean you might not suffer, that you won't face great hardship, but it does mean that our hearts will be full of peace. We can never make God the debtor. We can never live in such a way that it obligates God to do anything for us. That's not how it works. We don't deserve anything. Anything that we receive is by His grace. Indeed, if you look at verse 9... We read, um, for, the, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. This word obtain is the same word for inherit. Uh, you, you don't earn an inheritance. You receive an inheritance. Indeed, even as we think about what it means to sign up to be Christians, in many ways we're signing up for a more difficult life. For our Savior has promised to us that we would fake face persecution, suffering, and hardships on his account. 
That said, there is a great blessing that comes from living in the ways that God has instructed us. Imagine, if you will, if you received an ATV, somebody gave it to you, and the first thing you did is you took this four-wheeler and you drove it straight into the pond. You are no longer very blessed by that ATV, are you? Because you have not followed it according to the instruction manual. God has called us to live in such a way for our own good, because He loves us and wants us to lead lives um, that are peaceful. And by His definition, not just of the world's, by His definition, blessed. And so when we live in a way that glorifies God, in a way that um, truly is um, according to how He desires us to be, our lives are less complicated. And there are great blessings. This, of course, reminds us of Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is our third year of having a garden. Thanks to several men in our church who have helped us. Um, and, and, you know, looking back, it's interesting. Each year we've, we've, we've planted green beans. And do you know what has come up every time when we planted those green beans? It's the craziest thing. Green beans, actually. And, and the squash, you know, sometimes the squash comes up. But, but when it does come up, when we sow squash seeds, it's the craziest thing. Squash comes up. We haven't gotten watermelon one time from the squash seeds. And the, the obsession uh, sweet corn that we've been growing, and this year um, peaches and cream uh, corn, is surprising. We don't get field corn. We don't get a different kind of corn. We get exactly the kind that we sowed. And so it is with life. God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And when we sow into our lives an unrepentant sin, when we sow into our lives running from the Lord, we should not be surprised when there is strife in our lives. But as we look at this text, the focus here, it goes from the personal to the corporate, from the private to the church. There is a very real connection between who we are in private and the health of our local congregation. There's a very real connection between who we are in private and how we are seeking the Lord, seeking to lead a righteous life, and the health, vitality, um, and even culture of the local congregation. We are called to live privately with the Lord in a godly manner, seeking Him daily. And there are great blessings that come from it. But the context here is is that connection of of how are you living here and how it affects the local church. Think about it. When everyone in the church is, is personally seeking the Lord, dealing with their own sin and pursuing righteousness on their own. Think about how that impacts how we relate to each other in every context of every relationship we have, but especially here at the church. We have, therefore, several, many actually, imperatives or commands in this text where Peter is going to call us to live in a righteous lifestyle uh, in in a way that will benefit the local congregation, our congregation, First Pres. The first, positively stated, is unity of mind. Unity of mind. We see this in verse 8. We are called to have unity of mind. The Greek here is stronger. It means to have one mind. One mind. You know, the Lord has blessed our congregation, indeed, with every congregation, with different people of different stripes and backgrounds, passions, skills, desires, and vocations. 
We think differently. We are called to have the same mind together. So what does it mean when we are all very different from each other? It means to be united. It means to live in harmony with one another, not divided, not pursuing our own agendas or looking out for number one, but standing together as God's people, working together to see the kingdom of God further. A united church doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Indeed, I think a united church means that we have uh, widely different ideas and opinions. But when we differ, we differ well. We learn from each other and listen. Think about the church, the blessing of the church that is truly united together and living harmoniously. You know, this only comes when each one of us is seeking the Lord individually, on our own, seeking to fight sin and seeking righteousness. You know, if we're living in sin, um, if we're living in sin privately, or, or if there's a famine of God's Word in our lives individually, we should never expect to have a united church or to live harmoniously with each other. Think about what happens when you show up uh, with your extended family. And when someone's gone off the deep end, what does it do to the gathering of, of your extended family, even if you never even broach the subject? It changes it. It poisons it. And so too, as we are of one body, as we are the body of Christ, when one hand is diseased and it doesn't work, it affects the whole uh, body, it affects the whole congregation. Out of that unity comes this next command that we are to have brotherly love for each other. The community faith that is a local church is many things, and one of the most important things is it is a community of love. Not ushigushi love, but brotherly love. The agape love, that's the, te- that's the word here, agape love. The agape love that, 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 that points us and modeled and characterized by and fueled from the sacrificial love of our Savior for us. A love that is not based on zip codes or shared hobbies or high schools or football teams or games or even last names, but upon something that is so much more lasting, the bond that we have in Christ's blood. Can you imagine a church that is defined strongly by brotherly love in which we put the needs of others before our own? In which the the characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13, of that definition of love, that that is up and running. When we believe the best in each other, or patient with each other, or kind with each other, forgiving one another, and don't keep records of wrongs with each other. But certainly you see that those things will only happen if we are privately pursuing a righteous life before the Lord. Only will happen if we are seeking the Lord personally. How can brotherly love um, to others be expressed if we first haven't experienced it with Jesus on our own? And we aren't daily plumbing the depths of that love in His Word. You know, the reality is I love myself a lot. Not in biblical ways, in ungodly ways. And it's only when I come into contact with Jesus every day and His love for me, not a selfish love, but a sacrificial love. That He takes me beyond myself and allows me to love anyone well. Whether it be my family, anybody in community. A church with the famine of personal devotions will be a church that is defined by many things. But love won't be one of them. Love won't be one of them. 
out of that brotherly love, we next find that we are called to be sympathetic and tender-hearted. Sympathetic means to look upon the, the tra- trials of another and feel for them, to be concerned. But tender-hearted takes it a step further. It means to be compassionate and empathetic, putting yourselves in their shoes. In fact, the Greek word here, it, it refers to your, your innards, because in those days they thought that's where your seat of emotions were. We talk about the heart, they talked about their gut. You know, when you feel for someone, your, 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 your stomach tightens and you can just feel it. And that, that's the kind of tender-heartedness that is going on here. It is the opposite of being consumed by self and characterized by mourning with the mourning and rejoicing with the rejoicing. A church is a place where we are to care for each other in time of need. But here's the thing, if we aren't privately pursuing the Lord and doing battle against sin, we won't have time for anyone but ourselves. Indeed, we need that daily dose of God's Word and prayer to take us beyond ourselves, that we might even care for anybody. Anybody. We're to have humility of mind. Humility of mind. That's next in verse 8. You know, to have a church that is defined by humility is one in which we put others first, aren't looking to establish our own little fiefdoms or to seek to be served. The problem is that we are so naturally prideful. The problem is that I am so naturally prideful. Indeed, every sin can be traced back in some way to pride. That in that moment, I think I know what's best. A church that is defined by humility only comes from being personally dealt with by the Lord. And when we are dealt with by the Lord, we suddenly see our need for each other. We focus on the good qualities instead of the bad ones. And we begin to look for ways to serve rather than to be served. And of course, here we have the example of Christ and His humility. If we look at Philippians 2, 6-7, through 7, when we read that, that equality, He counted equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Well, if we scoop down to, to verse 11, there we find... Um, that we are to turn from evil and do good. There, there are a lot of things we could say about this. Um, but but I, I want to make this application. If we want to see a blessed life, we cannot and should not expect God to bless us while we are also pursuing sin. You cannot, we cannot, I cannot, pursue sin and the Lord at the same time. And we should not expect the Lord to bless us when we are running after Him. Indeed, often that's when He throws discipline in our path to remind us and to call us back to Him and to righteous living. Verse 11 tells us we are to seek, uh, seek and pursue peace. I think this comes out of brotherly love and humility. We are told in verse 9b to, to bless others. That's a positive statement in reaction to what we want to do. We want to revile and retaliate, but indeed God tells us to bless others. Indeed, this is what Christ has done for us. We have reviled Him. We have committed evil against Him. And what has He done? Has He retaliated against us? No. He has blessed us with salvation, that precious gift that can never be earned. We have also several negative statements here. Um, Don't deceive. We can go in a lot of places there. But but for the interest of time, I want to go to verse, uh, uh, verse 9 rather. Do not pay evil for, re- for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain or inherit 
a blessing. We are called not to engage in retribution. Have you ever been in a cycle of retribution? It's really ugly, isn't it? I remember uh, my best friend and I in 11th grade got tied up. He was wrong, I was right. Uh, It doesn't matter because I responded very ungodly. He was the unbeliever, I was the believer. And for six months, we didn't talk. In a small school with 69 people in your, in your class, that's pretty hard to do. And we spoke really ill of each other to everyone else. It was, it was tit for tat. Revile, revile, do evil to repay evil. I was teaching a boys' Bible study at the time. I mean, how terrible is this picture? I was engaged in retribution. There's no peace. There's no peace. There's no peace. There's no blessing when we engage in retribution, when we ratchet up, when we ratchet up, when we ratchet up. And you know, always the next response has to be greater than the one before. This is not how God desires us to live with one another. And I'm convinced the only way that we will see that that is the wrong way is when we meditate on and see anew every day that's not how God dealt with us. In fact, if we look at just the chapter before this in 1 Peter 2, verses 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, we read, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Indeed, our very salvation depends on this example of Christ, for we were the ones who committed evil against him and who reviled his name. But how has God dealt with it? We'll see next week when we look at Psalm 103 that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. That's how God deals with it. What if, what if, what if we dealt with others the same way? What would that do for our relationships? Well, the world has an idea about what a blessed life looks like, but it is horribly twisted. A blessed life ultimately comes from receiving eternal life from our Savior and being declared righteous. And out of that righteousness that we already have, we live out who we are in a way that reflects the character of our Savior. We seek to lead godly lives not to earn God's favor or His love or salvation. Those things are already ours, but because we have it. We have God's love. and We have God's favor. And as we seek Him privately and seek to do battle against our flesh every day, the impact, the blessings in our own life are just huge. But they pale in comparison to the blessings of a church that is defined by people who are individually seeking Jesus daily. As we gather together as our covenant community of faith, we reflect the love of Christ all the more to a dying and watching world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You do not deal with us according to our sin. For indeed, we fail in every one of these commands every day. We do revile and revile. We do repay evil for evil. Uh, We seek our own kingdoms and our own fiefdoms instead of seeking Yours. We are full of pride and and seek after um, what uh, adds to our benefit rather than that agape brotherly love looking out for the interests of others. Father, help us, help us to seek you daily that you might transform us in our relationships and our community. In the name of Jesus, we ask it.
Amen.